and welcome to Somatic. We produced this episode you are about to hear in July of 2019. For many parts of the United States, not just in the rural south, but in the north and throughout the country, summer months like July are a time for county fairs, like the one you are hearing in the background now. Things like 4-H ribbons, farm animals, tractor pulls, ferris wheels, elephant ears, hot dogs and cotton candy, sometimes rodeos. At the county fair, agriculture and entertainment seem to merge, and people engage in a ritualized practice that includes forms of consumption, of labor, of activity, and also leisure, sport, recreation. In the United States, agricultural fairs have been around since at least the 1700s, and today many people think warmly of county fairs family-friendly entertainment, spaces where one can celebrate and romanticize the nation's rural history, agricultural mythology and traditions. But this doesn't really capture the complex, problematic, and racialized meaning of county fairs. Back in 2018, I interviewed Dr. Benjamin Tausick, assistant professor of ethnomusicology at Stony Brook University. That year, he wrote an article about county fairs in Ohio, and how, quote, efforts to wipe the Confederate flag from local fairs have been met with a powerful silence. The county fair, Tausick argued, promotes a fantasy of whiteness. They're spaces of political imagination, with racially coded imagery and symbols like the Confederate flag on display. In this racialized rural fantasy, the body, be it active, laboring, leisurely, sporting, and racialized, is present. In this episode, we examine the racial politics of county fairs and consider the role of sport, leisure, and the body within such contexts. The audio you are about to hear is from my interview with Dr. Benjamin Tausig back in 2018. At the time, I wanted to speak with him about his recent article in the Arts and Politics magazine, Guernica, in which he explored the politics of race, the presence of racist symbols like the Confederate flag, at county fairs, and their relation to questions of sound and silence. In his article, Dr. Tausig focused on a county fair in northern Ohio, where, coincidentally, both Dr. Tausig and I grew up. Here's Dr. Tausig. So my name is Benjamin Tausig, or Ben Tausig, and I'm an assistant professor of ethnomusicology at Stony Brook University. Uh, my area of specialization is protest music, or sound and dissent, uh, and I've done major research projects in Bangkok, Thailand, as well as in the United States. He's the author of the recent book, Bangkok is Ringing, Sound, Protest, and Constraint, published by Oxford University Press. So he's an expert in sound studies and the relations between sound and descent, sound and space, sound and culture, things like that. Here, he gets into his recent research project, the cultural politics of county fairs, through the lens of sound, notions of silence and non-listening. Part of what I'm interested in at the county fair, and this isn't the entirety of the project, but this is sort of how I came to it, um, is, is the ways in which certain symbols end up uh, present at the fair, but unspoken. So one of the most interesting ones that I found was the, the presence of the symbols of Black Lives Matter, um, which you find all over the county fair, but you don't find them of, in, in terms of people being supportive of Black Lives Matter. Instead, you find those symbols being sort of co-opted and reoriented 
So you see like Police Lives Matter, you see like My Life Matters, uh, you, you know, you see like Teens Lives Matter. Um, basically everything gets taken up in the language of blank lives mattering. And I take this to be a, a way of kind of uh, sort of firing back at the Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, you see these stickers everywhere, you see these t-shirts everywhere. Um, it's this way of kind of refusing Black Lives Matter without ever speaking of it or speaking to it, right? So it's, it's not a kind of like a dialogic resistance to it, but a, but a, but a refusal. It's part of an, a broader effort to think about not, not so much sound uh, as non-sound, like situations where, where sound is kind of negated um, or where people don't listen. So I take the county fair to be a space of fantasy, uh, a space of, of, uh, of white, uh, white supremacy and white fantasy uh, that's kind of predicated on, on, on not listening to certain expressions from the outside world. Kalzik's notion of county fairs as, quote, a fantasy of whiteness. This is key to unpacking the racial politics of these events. So here's a quoted section from his article in Guernica that helps explain it. Quote, County fairs fall along a spectrum. On one end are fairs that emphasize the hard business of agriculture, farm labor, educating children through 4-H, raising and selling meat animals. On the other end are fairs that focus on the soft business of entertainment, which is off-color, deep-fried, militaristic, and profitable. Some county fairs that skew in the first direction resemble large livestock markets. Others that skew the second way are the domain of tractor pull competitions and carnival game prize, goldfish dying in overheated tanks along the midway. They are fun, filthy, occasionally tragic. Others, such as the fair that he attended in Northeast Ohio, meet in the middle. These fairs, which include both agriculture and entertainment, offer a vivid, unsettling fantasy of the ways in which rural and industrial decline coincide, a fantasy with severe racial overtones. The entertainment side draws heavily on the myths generated by the farming side, including the myths of virtue, myths of heritage, and myths of selfhood, all of which are transduced through the ennobling filter of cow shit. Fairgoers may pay for a belt buckle or a demo derby ticket, but what they buy is identification with a rural fantasy, end quote. Here's Dr. Tausig's explanation from our interview. I mean, it's, it's, it certainly has been that way for a long time. I mean, agriculture, uh, you know, in, in general is sort of, uh, you know, fantasized as being a white space. Um, you know, there's, there are these kind of like symbols of rurality uh, that have never necessarily been what, what everybody who goes to the fair experiences, right? Um, at least for a long time, it hasn't been that way. So county fairs have these kind of two sides to them. They have this, this agricultural side and this entertainment side. And the agricultural side really is for farmers, right? Like that's, uh, it's really a kind of a trade event. And of course it also has elements of ritual. Um, but then there's the, the entertainment side, which is like nothing but fantasy, right? And the farm side lends the entertainment side a certain kind of credibility, right? So you go to the entertainment side and, you know, there's like 
pig, like the games are all like pig games and corn games. Like they all come directly out of the materiality uh, and, and the stuff of agriculture. But they don't have to, right? The people who go to the, the entertainment part and spend their money there are not themselves necessarily farmers. Um, you know, they could be they could be in any field. Um, you know, they could be anywhere class-wise. But they go there and they have this kind of experience of of rural entertainment, right? Of, or of sort of agricultural entertainment. Um, and it's and that's a fantasy. And that fantasy gets coupled with this idea of a kind of like a purified, uh, you know, white existence. And at different fairs, it plays out differently, right? So uh, in the South, it's very, very explicit, right? You get these, uh, you know, they'll, they'll actually build uh, kind of fake plantation spaces, right? Like with the, the, the houses and uh, the lemonade and, you know, the clothing. Um, like, it's, it is set up to be a plantation-era space. It's explicitly like that. And the only African-American people you'll see in some of these southern fairs are servants, basically. I mean, so it's like, it, it's, it's very literal. It's very literal in the South. In the North, it's a, it's a little bit less so, but it's still pretty acute. Um, and part of it is just that you, you know, just who you see there, right? You know, typically who you see there. Uh, it's, it's mostly white people. Um, you know, these, the symbols of like Southern rebelliousness, uh, you know, sort of, they all speak to a, you know, a kind of like a, a purified white identity. Um, but in the North, it's kind of like, because, you know, because Ohio, for example, was a union state, this is all sort of a, a reformed identity, right? This isn't like, this isn't something with a, with a direct antecedent, right? There's no, there was no, there were no slavery times that people are kind of harking back to. Um, it's more of this kind of like reaction uh, to racial contention and and frankly to civil rights dissent around civil rights. So you know you had like the Ku Klux Klan actually rallied on the Stark County Fairgrounds in the 1920s. Um, you know if you go to the the uh, the museum that's right there by the uh, the McKinley Memorial, uh, you can find that stuff. You know from the um, from the new from the old newspapers uh you know news about the ku klux klan rallying on the fairgrounds um so there's been this kind of like this resistance to civil rights that's been going on for um you know you could trace it back about a century or so um but it's a relatively new newly constituted formation of of whiteness but it still has these kind of symbols of rurality to it interesting in, um, in, 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 in being at the, the Stark County Fair last year was that on the agricultural side, nobody talks about race, either, either, either out loud or symbolically. Um, it is an extremely white space, an extremely white space, overwhelmingly so. Um, I'm, I'm relatively sure I didn't see anyone of color, um, you know, even allowing for, for people's self-identifications, uh, it's, you know, it's a, it's a space of whiteness. But you also wouldn't see a Confederate flag on the agricultural side. Um, you know, you wouldn't see sort of like redneck imagery. You wouldn't see anti-immigrant imagery. Um, that's just not a part of that world. 
um, or, or maybe it is in people's private lives, but in the sort of the public space of the hard agricultural business of the fair, people are pretty focused on the, the task at hand. Um, I mean, they're selling stuff, and there's also simultaneously this ritual of, you know, the, the kids who raise the animals saying goodbye to their animals and also learning how to, you know, how to bring them to, uh, to market. Um, so it's really like it's very pragmatic it's it's not a place where people are you know sort of like exhibiting themselves in fact not a lot of people go um, you know you get a small crowd for like the uh, the auctions right you get the the auctioneers and stuff do their thing and that's entertaining and you, you know you get a you get a small crowd for it but you know way more people are riding the roller coasters and buying the funnel cakes than they are going to watch the steers get auctioned off um, so it's just, it, it doesn't have that kind of like, uh, public feel. Like it's, it, it's, it's not an exhibition of identity. Um, even though it's, it is an extremely phenotypically white space, it does not have that kind of exhibition of identity that the entertainment side has. I mean, I, I see the entertainment side as really depending on the agricultural side in a lot of ways. Um, you know, if the agricultural side kind of exists for itself or exists as a way to, to make money, um, the, the, the entertainment side needs it, right? Because if, if, if it was just an entertainment event, it wouldn't be credible as a rural thing, right? You wouldn't believe, like, why would you have pig races if you didn't also have pigs, right? I mean, it, it's fairly clear that historically the relationship between these things is that you know, farmers have pigs, farmers raise pigs, farmers sell pigs. Sometimes they also train their pigs to do whatever it is pigs can do, like run through an obstacle course. Um, and if you just had the entertainment side, it's like, why, why, why are the pigs there, right? Um, it only really makes sense if it's paired with the agricultural side. So the fact that the agricultural stuff is going on makes the entertainment side feel, feel more authentic. It's, it's an authenticating relationship. The entertainment side is key for understanding the role of sporting and body practices in the racial politics of county fairs. Here, Dr. Talzik discusses what constitutes the entertainment side. It's it's very uh, repetitive. So there's the same the same stuff happens throughout the the day and really throughout the entire fair. Um, so you have the midway, which is like all these little rides and games. They are brought in by a company. Um, and there's a few of these companies that, you know, that, that sort of travel around, right, that have like a, they have clients, which are different fairs, and they go from, from fair to fair. They're all like incredibly cheap, you know, it's like ring tosses and whatever. Like a lot of them are pretty old. Uh, the rides like kind of feel like they could break, which I think is part of their appeal. The people that work them are seasonal employees. Um, a lot of them are, are young or otherwise unemployed or, or uh, you know, kind of itinerant. They live in these little cities that get constructed by the companies that, that bring the rides. So there's that stuff. Uh, and then you have these kind of, th these animal-based events, um, which are mostly like, mostly races. They're kind of novelty races. They involve like baby animals typically um, being put in like, situations where they have to do funny stuff or race around or jump over obstacles and then you have the music and usually there's like one big 
act, like one featured act. And then they'll have like, the, there's music all day, right? So there's usually one stage uh, with a little amphitheater. And then there's like the, the tractor pull area, which is where the big concert happens. But on the little stage, it's just like whatever local acts want to play. So it could be anybody at all. Um, it could kind of be any genre. You see a lot of jazz, but you also see a lot of like, just kind of like like kids, uh, like kid musicians, like some lady like doing karaoke. Like it's really, really kind of like whoever signs up. And then there's the like tractor pull stuff. Um, so this year they've got the tractor pull, the demolition derby, marching bands, things like that. And that all happens like basically in a big dirt field. Um, and it's like, it's very cheap, you know, it's it's usually like five bucks or something to get into each one, and that'll be the big entertainment for the night. The tractor pulls are part of, uh, you know, it's it's like, there's like a league, right? Like, they do these all over the place, and they have like season-long competitions. They're pretty fascinating to watch. I mean, it's it's basically just like, you know, getting as much smoke as you can and as much noise as you can into the air. Like, uh... It's a very short blast of entertainment, followed by like 20 minutes of, you know, the, the guys like pulling their tractor, their broken tractor off the dirt. And then, you know, finally they get it set up again and they, you know, they pull the sled 100 yards and you wait another half hour. It, it's not the most like kind of thrill a minute entertainment. I guess the Demolition Derby is a little bit more exciting. Um, they have harness racing too. I asked Dr. Talzik about the presence and popularity of what are typically called sports at these county fairs. Rodeo is the big one. I mean, um, you know, it sort of depends on how you define sports. Um, right. I mean, right. I, I think I think that the tractor pulls and the demolition derbies very much are sort of understood as a sports spectacle, um, even though you don't, you know, you don't have kind of, you're, you're not watching the athletes so much um, or, you know, like ooing and eyeing over their physical prowess. It's more about, you know, kind of like who's built the best and most robust tractor, right? Like who's, who's tweaked their engine the best and, and things like that. Um, so it's, a, it's a, different, a different kind of sport, but I think it's still consumed as a sport. Um, it's still sort of graded as a sport, um, and, it, and people still identify with it as, as they would with sports, right? They follow it. We didn't talk too much about specifically sport during the interview, but I think it can be reasonably argued that there are some significant parallels between the emergence of county fairs as these sort of populist, racially coded spaces by the 20th century and other similar instances and movements that entailed racially coded rural nostalgia. I mean, think about the creation of urban parks by the late 19th century. Those playing Indian practices, instances of sporting otherness like the Boy Scouts and the Campfire Girls, the Back to the Land movements, the Wild West shows and their celebration of Anglo-American imperialism out West, the organizing of sports like boxing, football, and baseball as spaces for redefining white masculinity in the period of modernization, of rapid industrialization and urbanization. And all of these instances entailed practices that were intertwined with white racial identity politics. There is an important physical, cultural, and political dimension to county fairs. Their overt, militarized nature in association with military-based activities.
there's not a lot of political issues that get explicitly evoked at the fair, but uh, but but guns and weapons are one um, that do, and and a lot of that is routed through uh, military stuff. Sometimes it's just a mat. It's just a matter of pride. You know, you see people everywhere with like you know my son and daughter are in the Marines shirts um a lot of the the vendors like their stands are kind of like thematized around military stuff so they might sell like a lot of military shirts um the military itself actually recruits at county fairs so uh you know you get these booths and they're they're quite large actually like they're not they're you know they're, they're bigger than the than the little kind of uh funnel cake vendors um some of them you can actually like go inside like it's basically like a little uh like a small house that you can go in They'll have, like, pull-up bars, right? And you come by, and then you, like, see how many pull-ups you can do. And the, 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 the recruiters will be like, oh, that's great, you can do 10, but, like, you know, if you want to be a Marine, you have to do, like, 50 or whatever. And they'll sign you up, um, and then, like, maybe call you and ask you if you're interested in, 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 in signing up. Uh, they have, like, little video games uh, where you can, like, shoot terrorists, so the military is really present everywhere. I would say that participation in the military is really like the moral center of the county fair. It is, it, it is the thing, aside from religion, it's, it's the thing that you can do that's selfless, that's considered selfless, and that's considered good, like unambiguously good, uh, unang- unambiguously sacrificing. Um, it's, 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 how you show that you're a good person, right? And do something for, uh, for, for the, the common good. Uh, that's kind of how it's lost. So, you know, there's no contention over that. Um, people are really proud of it, and they wear it on their sleeves, and it's, it's really everywhere at the fair. Talzik went to county fairs and interviewed various people. He interviewed vendors, activists, visitors, members of the NAACP who organized tables at fairs in Ohio to contest their use of racist symbols at the Confederate flag. The visibility of the Confederate flag is one of the most prominent racist symbols that one can see at county fairs across the country. The fairs function as a fantasy of whiteness, not just through these racially coded symbols, however, but because they're also kind of, they're powered by a kind of silence. And this is a key part of Dr. Taus's research and his analysis of these fairs. When you talk to people about it, they don't want to talk about it, right? Nobody wants to talk about it. Because they all know that there's no, there's no real defense for it, right? There's no, there's no easy defense of it. Um, I think if they're talking to each other about it, like, the excuses range. Um, you know, they say that it's, you know that white people should be able to be proud of their history too. They say that slavery is more complicated than its critics say. Um, there's all this kind of like very ahistorical stuff about how there were actually, you know, a lot of black slaveholders, which, you know, there were a couple, there were some, but not a lot. And that's not really what slavery was. So it's, you know, it, it's a way of kind of changing the, the discussion, right? It's a way of excusing it. Um, and so when you talk to people about it, that's the kind of stuff they say. They say it's a symbol of St. Andrew. They say uh, it's, you know, uh, that it doesn't mean what you think it means. Um, 
They say that it's about Southern hospitality, right? You get all these different terms that sort of, that, that all of which avoid the question of, don't you understand that this flag was primarily a symbol of the slaveholding South and that people still recognize it that way? Um, it's, it's, it's all, they're all evasions of that. And it really comes down to like, it's a symbol of white pride. It's a symbol of pride and whiteness of, of a certain kind of status that people are nostalgic for, whether or not it ever existed for them. A lot of these people are people who don't, who genuinely don't have a lot, right? Who, uh, who like don't have great jobs or great houses or great living situations who face all kinds of problems. Like that's, that is genuinely true. And this is something that they kind of, that they want to hold on to, uh, as a way to feel special and important and, and validated. Um, the problem of course, is that that validation comes at the cost of the domination of other people. Um, and, and that's something, that's what they don't want to recognize. Like I said, people don't like to talk about the, count, the, the Confederate flag at the county fair. Um, when you ask them, you know, so what does it mean to you to sell these belt buckles? Uh, they don't want to speak about it. Um, this, there is, there, there is no overt declaration of, of this being a white space. This stuff all happens through symbols um, and through sort of walls of silence. Um, that's how it operates. You know, the uh, you, you can find people like through the Black Lives Matter stuff or through the Blank Lives Matter stuff, um, through the ways that you know, for example, as I talked about in the article, there was an uptick in sales of Confederate merchandise after Bree Newsom took the flag down in the South Carolina courthouse, right? Because people got freaked out and they thought the Confederate flag was going to go away forever. Um, so even in the purchasing patterns of the Confederate flag, you see a reaction to uh, what's going on in the outside world that is not coupled with a discussion about what's happening in the outside world. So you, you people react to it, but they don't talk about it. They don't dialogue about it. Um, it doesn't produce a kind of a, a, a broader conversation about, hey, what's going on here? How can we create a society that's hospitable to everyone? That's, that's, that's not what it is, right? That discussion never happens. So you could go to the county fair and you could, you know, you could feel this, uh, this racial hierarchy without ever hearing a word about it, right? Without ever hearing a word uttered about it. I understand it to be a practice of kind of active non-listening, right? Actively not listening. Um, you know, people hear what's going on in the outside world. They, they are aware of it, but they refuse to listen to it, right? So I'm distinguishing here between hearing and listening. They can hear this stuff, but they refuse to listen to it. Um, and they, there are all kinds of complex active processes that they engage in in order to, to refuse to engage in that listening. Um, and that's something that I find really fascinating um, because that's symptomatic more broadly of the way that we conduct politics in this country in general now, right? Um, we sort of, we, we refuse the other as a constitutive uh, aspect of how we do politics, right? This is like how social media works. Um, this is how, you know, this is how ideology works. This is how political ideology works. Um, is a kind of, uh, that, that, that the other is always a kind of, uh, you know, some, something to be something to be pushed out and in the act of that pushing out 
we generate our own communities. So the county fair is a community that is generated through the act of refusing this political other. And that I think of as being uh, sort of, in general, an act of non-listening. I think the fair is a ritualized practice of not listening. Um, it's, a, it's an insular space of, uh, of pretending that, uh, that the outside world doesn't exist. Wow, um, just another outstanding interview there um, that Sam did uh, with Dr. Tausig. Um, we can just start off by just saying, like, thank you so much uh, to Dr. Tausig for, for sitting down and, and talking with us um, for the show. It took us a little while to get this one to, to the airwaves, um, as it were, um, but I think in the end it worked out to be amazing timing, um, such a kind of prescient topic for this time of the year obviously for the kinds of cultural experiences some of us are having around around the country uh but also you know to deal with a particular issue of uh, of whiteness right now and, and how we conceptualize that and and in the particular moment that we're in i think that's an important topic uh to be discussed in its many many facets as it was here um sam did an amazing job with the interview and i want to thank him as well for leading the effort on that um so uh, again uh if you want to get in uh, contact with us you can always always do that through either going to our website at somaticpodcast.com or emailing us at somaticpodcast at gmail.com um, you can also go to the website to check out the accompanying uh, blog post that Sam's written to go with this episode, um, which will give you some more detail and potentially some links uh, through to uh, additional information that may uh, be of interest uh, if this uh, if this episode was something that you found interesting. Um, we plan to come back relatively soon this time with the next episode. Um, already have that recorded, um, so we should be able to build straight into the next one with that. Um, and we hope to as well keep a, a few more coming out um, into the uh, late summer, early fall. Um, and into the future so if you have any other topics that you're interested in like I said do get in contact uh, we'd be happy to talk with people um, or, or if you know people that would be interested uh, to talk to us or a topic you think should be covered we would be very interested in doing so um, so with that it's just left for me to say that this has been Somatic